0: Well, hello, and welcome to episode 167 of the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast, number three in our category. And I am Laura Camacho, and I am the author of the Practical Guide to Effective Communication, which is a great handbook to help you get recognized for the value you're already contributing. There are chapters on presentations, emotional intelligence, your communication style. There's an assessment of about preparing for difficult conversations, being persuasive, building your network, how to make small talk. I just basically put an encyclopedia of a communication in one book. It really is loaded. So when you buy it, don't read the whole thing because it's too much to read in one sitting. Just start with one chapter. Anyway, today we have a super interesting guest. His name is Michael Reddington, and he is a CFI. I think that's Certified Forensics Expert. He is the president of Inquasive Inc., which is an authority on ethical persuasion. He is a Certified Forensic Interviewer. That's what CFI stands for. And so he has a lot of experience with criminals, I bet, and he has something called The Disciplined Listening Method, that's his book. And he talks about how certified forensic interviewers find value in every conversation. So I cannot wait to hear that. Uh, So we're going to learn about persuasion, about paying attention to things that we haven't known how to pay attention to. So he works, you know, of course, with the Fortune uh, 100, 1000 companies, He has spoken at the Kellogg School of Management at Harvard. He is an expert and lives in North Carolina, which is just north of South Carolina. So I'm excited to bring you Michael Reddington. All right, Michael. So I want to know, first of all, welcome to the Speak Up podcast. Super happy to have you here. You definitely have a super interesting background as a certified forensic interviewer, which sounds like you would be working with criminals. So I don't know, I want you to explain that, but like, how the heck did you get into that line of business? Tell us about your career journey.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Laura. I really appreciate the opportunity for the conversation. Thank you. At one point in my life, sure. Yeah, I did speak with criminals that, well, criminals is the word that gets thrown a lot, but I like to say people who made regrettable decisions.
0: Oh, well, I think a lot of us listening to that fall into <laughs> like, that category, I know I, I, I would be there, too.
1: I've made my share. I've, I've made my share. But really, when I, I think back about how literally I got to this conversation with you today, it's been a series of happy accidents and unplanned events. I started as a special education school teacher and baseball coach ended up in the financial industry, wasn't a good fit for me personally, went back to school to get a business degree, was juggling part-time jobs, paying bills, and a part-time job in the world of investigations accidentally turned into a career. And one day I was exposed to interview and interrogation and had the opportunity to start having conversations with people that had done things maybe they'd like to have back. And for me, I became Utterly fascinated with why people would consistently choose to share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances in the face of certain consequences. To me, it just boggled my mind that they would do it. So, my research, you know, I, I got to take the, my, the leash off my inner nerd and I got to dive into research all throughout the world of non confrontational interview and interrogation to really understand how that works, which led me to achieving my certified forensic interviewer designation. That led me to being recruited by the world leader in non-confrontational interview and interrogation training and advising, a company called Wicklander Zaloski. So I got to work with them for a decade and run their investigations division and travel the world teaching these non-confrontational interrogation techniques. And during that time is where I began to become exposed, might be the English, the proper way to say it, to how these techniques could begin to solve communication problems in the corporate world as well. That led me to taking the leash off my inner geek one more time and really diving into business communication research and best practices. And inadvertently, I came across two realizations. The first being that the best interviewers and the best leaders capitalize on the same two core skills, vision and influence. Yep. And the second being that the cognitive process that interrogation suspects experience when they truthfully commit to saying, I did it, is essentially identical to the cognitive processes that employees experience when they commit to saying, I'll do it, and customers experience when they commit to saying, I'll buy it.
0: Wow, that is absolutely mind-blowing. So I know you in the audience are just having your brains expanded right now listening to Michael's, who knew? Who knew, but the people that you're talking to, we are all, well, I can't say every single one, but people that pay attention to conversations, people that think about, think before speaking. Nice. And, um, and we're going to today dive into, you know, delicate to- topics of conversation, mm-hmm. uh, being more persuasive, but I wanted to kind of get your take with, with your client interactions Your take on the economy, we're recording this on the, I think it was the first day of fall 2022 or autumn for you, Brits. And I'm hearing a mixed bag of economic news that, you know, that it's good, but certain companies are having serious layoffs, slashing marketing budgets and yet in and here in South Carolina manufacturing companies having a hard time every time i go to the grocery store i feel a little nauseated sometimes looking at the prices increasing so you know if we're going to talk to employees about the economic situation how can we even start that conversation when we don't even know What the heck is really going on?
1: I think we start the conversation with the fact that we don't really know what is going on without getting political in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Over the last two or three years, in our own way, based on our own perspectives, I think most of us have begun to question messages we receive and who we receive them from and the motives we receive them from. And I'm not attaching any political opinion to that in any way, shape or
0: form. Um, Thanks space. (laughs) <laughs> free of all politics. Thank
1: you. Thank you. So, so with that, I think understanding the impact of uncertainty and stress on all of our conversations. Okay. And sometimes that tends to be more front of mind when we're engaging with somebody about a specific topic that we believe creates uncertainty or stress. All right. all Often right. we lose sight of it when it's just running in the back so we might be having conversations with somebody within our organization without necessarily realizing that the uncertainty and stress that the economic world is playing in their life in the background mm-hmm. can be impacting their productivity at work, their relationship at work, their communications at work, how they're perceiving what we're, t- what we're talking about in this conversation here today. So I think just even regardless of what the answer is, because I don't have it either as far as the economy itself. What?
0: But, you don't have a crystal
1: ball? <laughs> yeah, I wish I did. Just rub my bald head and all of a sudden
0: <laughs> all the answers come.
1: But just understanding in general that the stress and the uncertainty that we experience every day as we ride that roller coaster, that's mm-hmm. going to impact how people show up at work and how people present themselves in conversations and, and even just doing a training program yesterday with a CEO and his leadership team, the CEO chimed in several times to talk about, you know, we never know what somebody else is dealing with in their life and how that might be impacting this conversation. And it's easier for us to to be that situationally aware sometimes, and it's more difficult than others. But now more than ever, you know, we can stand in front of a whiteboard and fill it with all the socioeconomic instances yeah Yeah. that that have been affecting us for years now so how is that adding up and affecting people it's it's just important to keep that in mind
0: yeah and do you think it's that the how do you see the virtual context in with how, how can we compare and contrast I think I know that in person communication it is easier to read the person to feel rapport with the person So, but we're all working hybrid or working remotely. Mm -hmm. Is that making it more difficult? Is that creating even more stress in our brains?
1: Likely, quite likely. I mean, there's no shortage of information on asymmetric communication. And we're talking with people virtually, and our brain feels like we're actually in person, but it's not quite that way. So we're not seeing reactions in the same time or getting the whole picture. So, you know, there's lots of, of research out there that lots that's been written that, that people can read. But to talk about it from an evaluation and rapport standpoint that you mm-hmm. mentioned, it comes down to another word that gets thrown around a lot, but that's intentionality. Yeah. Uh, too, many, all, too many of us have 17 one-hour virtual meetings scheduled in an eight-hour day. And we're going from the next to the next to the next to the next. So yes, that is absolutely increasing our anxiety and our stress as we're trying to figure out how to do our job in between these meetings. And Mm -hmm. we used to complain about how many in-person meetings we have, but now it's almost like people have carte blanche to look at our calendar and schedule virtual meetings as well. So two things. One is intentionally slowing down. Mm-hmm. So at the start of our in our virtual conversations, if we're just diving into the business purpose of the conversation, all right Laura, great to see you. So today we have to talk about. You are a cog in my wheel. That's all you feel like. And that's all I should expect you to feel like. So if I can, in my mind, chalk out, and I live in the Carolinas as well, by the way. So so business meetings down here, if it's a 60 minute meeting, the first 45 to 58 minutes of that meeting are gonna be a little bit more social conversation.
0: Right, right. right. Um,
1: but it, on these virtual calls, in my mind, let's at least chalk out five to eight minutes that are going to be, hey, how are you? How are your kids? How's your husband? How's your life? And just ease our way into the business purpose of the call, which can be harder for us if we're high speed, high productivity, let's get through this. But time is the enemy of empathy. Anytime We we are focusing on how quickly can I get this conversation done? Where do I have to be next? We might not realize it, but our brain is focused on the ticking clock. And the ticking Mm -hmm. clock is keeping us from fully focusing on this conversation and capitalizing on the value or the opportunities that are being presented. So Mm -hmm. slowing down the clock externally to give us time to talk about ourselves, Mm -hmm. but also slowing down the clock internally Mm
0: -hmm. is a
1: really important piece. I have one thought on the evaluation side too, but I I certainly want to pause for for any insight. Yeah, well, I'm
0: just thinking... You're telling me to slow down. How can I slow down? I got too much to do, Michael. We all. We all.
1: <laughs>
0: but but I do think that, uh, I mean, I totally agree. And I, I um, you know, I always say that excellent communication starts with intention. But I think that emotional check-in in the beginning, because it, virtual communication is more transactional. You know, that's the default. What do you want? To, this is what I need you to do. Are you going to do it? You know, what, how much is it going to cost? And, and then you're done. And it it's efficient. That's why our productivity soared so much, but it takes a toll on the quality of life, on our stress levels, our relationships, and uh, ultimately how satisfied we feel with our work. So I will say one takeaway from the first five minutes of talking to Michael is that we need to slow down a little bit. And I would say maybe reduce the scope of the agenda, it sounds like. <laughs> And certainly block off time for that people can't get on your calendar. I mean, oh, I sure. do that religiously because I, I mean, I people can opt, can set up their own appointments on my calendar, clients or people interested in talking about, you know, bringing me in, and probably you have the same system. If you don't block up that time, you know the you could find yourself uh, in in deep trouble so i think yeah man, really being a proactive in managing your schedule and scheduling time for yourself and addressing talking to people as people in the beginning of your meeting so that that's a way of lowering everybody like getting everybody to calm down right for
1: sure for sure and you mentioned even our emotions before mm-hmm. and I am not a psychologist or even a psychiatrist or I didn't stay at a holiday Inn express last night, but for me, believe it or not, although I talk for a living, I would consider myself to be a drop dead introvert. You give me something that um, I'm passionate about talking. I've got a topic. No problem. But you put me in a room full of people and say, make friends. I'll be by the bar. If you need (laughs) me, that's, that's where I'll be. So I feel like from an introverted perspective, this might be easier, but I'm making a bit of a guess there. It's one of the ways to really gain quicker to to recognize our emotions quicker and to gain control of them quicker is to listen to our body. Because generally, when our emotions change, we get a physiological indication that our emotions are changing before our brain realizes it. So it's like emotion shift, body changes brain realizes now we can control. So there are those gaps in in time in between. That might be really short, might be longer depending on the situation. So for me, I really try to stay in tune to what is my body telling me during these conversations. And I really try to pay attention to what are my personal physiological responses Mm -hmm. to rising levels of stress or discomfort. So for me, the most common one, especially if somebody can see me, is I'll catch myself curling my toes in my shoes.
0: Oh, really? That's... And as
1: soon as I catch that, that's my first indication. Okay, my emotions are changing. I've got to refocus and get control.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's true because not only for your own health, which is extremely important, but the quality of your communication is going to plummet. It's going to, yeah. I mean, and it, it's so bad. You can, and you know, you, you write a terse answer to an email, and then you realize you misunderstood or you were responding, you know, inappropriately because of some, because you're in too much of a hurry, it's really hard to recover from that. So yeah, if you're feeling, I would I just feel my stomach, but I but I definitely with stress, I I withdraw and stop being so friendly. And then that is super obvious to everybody, <laughs> but they don't know why I'm upset. They don't know what's wrong with me. They just know that she's not being very nice, <laughs> which is not, <laughs> not a very helpful perception. Probably not. <laughs> right. Not not my best look. <laughs> so so we need to just pay more attention, right? To and figure out what is that body signal. What are some other common body signals that people get that sit with your trainings that you that you know about?
1: Oh, so we can look at that two ways. I think if we're listening to our own body, what are the, what, how does our body change when our emotions change? So if your hands are in your pockets, are you rubbing your fingers together? Does your breath rate change? Do you feel your face getting warmer? Does your heart rate change? Do you clench your jaw? Like so so there's, I mean, we're all different, but our, our, what are starting to figure out what are our personal triggers? That'll be our personal triggers, not the right word, personal reactions or, or yeah, physiological yeah. reactions to triggers. Mm-hmm. From the other side in To tie it specifically to the virtual conversation that we started with, and I'm I'm happy to go beyond there if you would like, one of the things that we really talk about in the virtual conversations is to focus on what we do have, not what we don't have. Mm -hmm. So as you and I engage here virtually, I can see your face pretty well, and I can right now I can see your left hand pretty well, Um, (laughs) and and your right, welcome to the party, right hand. (laughs) Um, but what I don't have, forget the fact that I don't have the rest of your body. What I don't have is the environment around you. Right. So I literally have no control, no awareness and no understanding of the context that you're currently sitting in, which means regardless of how good I believe I may be at evaluating Mm -hmm. nonverbal communication, which by the way, the research is clear, none of us are as good as we think we are. No -hmm. matter how good I may actually be, I literally have to throw it away. Because if all of a sudden you stiffen up or you look away or something changes with your behavior, it might be because the dog just ran in the room or the Amazon truck parked out front of your window or something else, the water spilled, something else happened that I have no awareness of whatsoever. So believe it or not, my personal opinion, and others certainly may share it, is that we should actually get a much better read on people during our virtual conversations because we should be focusing on less variables or fewer variables. If you and I were talking face-to-face right now, I would have to take in the totality of your nonverbal communication, your verbal communication, the context of everything going on around us, while also being concerned with my nonverbal behavior, anything that I might have going on around me, in a virtual conversation, I can limit all of that. I'm in an office right now. Everything's quiet around me. I can focus on you. If this was a, any type of meeting or something that I had to plan for, I could literally have a cheat sheet right over here next to me with the questions I want to ask or the points I need to hit. You wouldn't see it. You wouldn't know that I had it. Right. So. I can limit the amount of variables that I have to deal with on my end to get it to almost zero. I don't have to worry about my nonverbal behavior or how I'm dressed or anything, because all you can see is this little box. So now I've limited the variables on my end. My brain should have more power and resources available to focus on you. While I'm focusing this is gonna to start to sound creepy I didn't mean that way at all but while oh, I'm so focusing I, I get it
0: as an audience as your audience
1: yeah, so now while I'm focusing on you I really want to focus on your verbal delivery
0: mm-hmm. yeah okay.
1: sure some facial expressions might jump out or some nonverbal behaviors might jump out but again are you making that facial facial expression in me or are you making that facial expression because somebody in your house, just walked in and you're in the middle of a meeting and you're like, Oh, I don't want to end up at the funny person on the internet. Get out of here. Right. So so literally I'm only focusing on the verbal part of the communication. How loud or soft are you talking? How fast or slow are you talking? What's changing with your pauses? What's your specific word choice telling me? How is your behavior? How's your verbal behavior changing? Any indications of emotion changing during the conversation? That's really what I'm focusing on. And for me, just from a verbal perspective, mm-hmm. we always talk about the totality of circumstances. So mm-hmm. I don't want to I don't want to ever make a judgment based on one behavioral change. They're often referred to as behavioral clusters or, or behavioral groups or whatever word wants to be used. But I want to make my decisions based on observing multiple behaviors that change simultaneously, not just one. Within those clusters, from a verbal perspective, for me, the thing that I typically find the most value in is catching when somebody starts to use a word, but then cuts themselves off in the middle of the word and changes it. So if I'm having a conversation with somebody and they say, well, Mike, I've actually been really I've got to stop and think about what my team is experiencing right now and everything they're going through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just stopped myself from saying I'm frustrated, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I'm now transitioning to I'm looking after my team. Right, I'm a great leader, or I'm Robin Hood, or both. Just right, listen to where right. I'm going next. So now, by catching that, I know number one that you're frustrated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know number two, you want me to think of you as the hero of your team. Mm -hmm. And I know that number three, you're going through an exercise of impression management. So this relationship conversation outcome is important to you. So now that I know all of, I'm not going to call you out on it ever, but now that I know all of those things, I can begin to adapt how I communicate with you in order to work towards the agreement or understanding that we need at the end of this conversation. And the only way that I can pick up on those things is if I can be fully focused during the conversation. So
0: right. so, so you need to be prepared. You need to know what you want to out of your questions. And then I think this, I think everybody, I want to just underscore this takeaway that when someone changes the word they're going to say, and I know I've done that, and everybody does that. Me too. Um, but so that's like a key thing to pay attention to us in the virtual context because we can't see our shoes we can't see you know we're just so limited and plus we have these filters on to make us look better anyway which is a blessing i think uh, for for all of us but uh so 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 really notice when somebody is ch- changes them what they're going to say which introverts i think are more likely to do because we're more thought well, we're not usually verbally processing. We're, we're we're thinking about what we're saying. And to me, the person mm-hmm. that does change what they're the word in midstream, they are, at any rate, being thoughtful. They mm-hmm. they have some awareness of what they're saying. That's very interesting. um Could you tell us a story about how noticing these things that you learned from your uh, experience in forensics related to persuasion. I think that is a fascinating connection. And I know that that people want to hear like, how does that work?
1: So so from my perspective, and again, I'm sure there are plenty of other people that share it as well. The linchpin, maybe even 85% of the process of persuading somebody to accept your idea over Mm -hmm. theirs is to align their self-image with what you want them to do. If whatever we're asking them to do appears to be consistent with how they see themselves thinking, acting, talking in this situation, we're in, we're gold the greater the gap between what we're asking them to do and how they see themselves thinking, talking, or acting in this situation, the harder it is going to be for us. So in all of our conversations, regardless of context, investigation, leadership development, negotiating deals, business development, coaching, interviewing candidates, doesn't matter. In all of those scenarios, from a persuasive standpoint, I don't wanna make sure I'm engaging with somebody in a way that of course I come across as credible, but I'm not embarrassing them.
0: Right, right, I'm not
1: causing them to feel judged. And right. I am being strategic or intentional in establishing the communication in a way where they see whatever I'm asking them to do as an extension of who they are and what they're already doing, not mm-hmm. something that's entirely different or counter to who they are and what they're already doing. And there's, I guess, for simplicity purposes, I'm sure it's more than this. There's two ways to look at that. You have a long game and a short mm-hmm. game. And often they can be overlaid in each other. Mm-hmm. So on a long game, if I have another executive who I work with who is difficult to influence, okay, well, what other tools do I have? Well, first I want to study how they like to make decisions. Are they somebody that loves to have lots of data? Are they somebody that likes to be seen as an innovator? Are they somebody who typically follows the lead of a few people who they admire? Um, are they somebody that likes to be presented with the idea that's all buttoned up? Or are they somebody that likes to be able to say, that's a good idea, but I have a better one.
0: Right. They want you, they want
1: to contribute to that. And and so then for me, it's a goal oriented mindset. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, if they like to be able to say, I think we can do it a little better then even if I think I have it all buttoned up, I'm going to present it to him with a couple of holes in it that he can fix.
0: Right. If
1: she is somebody that loves to be an innovator, well, then I want to make sure this feels like an innovative opportunity. If he is somebody that loves a lot of data, I'm going to be patient and collect that data. If she is somebody that is influenced by some thought leaders or whoever it might be, other popular executives, then I might actually research their library of podcasts and interviews and articles and conversations and hopefully find one that substantiates where I'm looking to go and share that with them. So they listen to that and come back to me and say, "You know what? I was listening to that interview and I've got a good idea." Oh, I bet you do. Here's my surprise face. Let's now work on it together.
0: So <laughs> I, I, let me let me let me some, re, re, recap all of that. That's I know that people listening are loving this. You get to put on your detective hat and do some investigation on the people that you want to influence, even if there's seven levels above you, which I know that's not possible, probably, but two or three levels: the CEO, the CFO, the CHRO, like that person, what yeah, what makes them take what are the levers that that Mm move them, right? Do Mm -hmm. that research. And you think even finding out the podcast they listen to, I never thought about that. Um, but that, that tells you a lot about their interest, doesn't it?
1: It does. And how they like to make decisions and how they see themselves. Mm
0: -hmm. So if
1: we can approach them in the way they like to see themselves and allow them to make decisions in the way they like to make decisions, then we might have to be more patient and we might not get the credit in the end. We just might get what we wanted. We just had to give up a little time and a little credit in order to get there.
0: Right. So let's say that we. So so you think the the most important thing in getting we'll say the green light or buy in for any kind of proposal, uh, whether it's a promotion or a new project or hiring, is to get alignment with the personal interests, the personal and professional interests of your key decision makers. Is there anything else we should be mindful of?
1: Yes, I would say that for sure. And in each of those examples, and I heard you mention promotion as well, approaching it from an outcome standpoint, as opposed to why I'm the best choice standpoint. So a lot of times, if we are trying to procure somebody's business, or we're trying to get them to agree to a deal, or they're trying to get us, get them to either promote us to a job or appoint us to be the point person on a certain project task, whatever it may be, it can be really tempting and honestly easy to basically say, "Well, Laura, in case you forgot, I'm awesome. So let me remind you how awesome I am and why I would be perfect for this job." And I, I say it that way for effect, but it, we might not think we're saying it that way. But to the person hearing us, it can come off as that way.
0: Yes, it does. It absolutely does a lot, and a lot of other presentations also come across that way. Unfortunately, they do. it's not they a win. Do not a winning recipe.
1: It's really not. Whereas if we can take a step back and say, okay, well, if we're looking at the outcome of this potential partnership, yes, Mm -hmm. we have this partnership right now that could be worth however many millions of dollars and can have this impact on our brand and give us this new market penetration. Okay. That's true. If it goes well, what's the next ripple effect? What's the next opportunity this creates? Uh, What's the opportunity after that it creates? So now if I can elevate the decision maker's perspective, not just from the tactical short-term, but the strategic long-term, now when I have the conversation, it's, hey, Laura, this is a pretty awesome opportunity. When we look at what we have, the opportunity we have to create with this partnership, and now I just start walking through the ripples.
0: Right. And now
1: as I'm walking through the ripples, it's obvious that mm-hmm. I have the education, that I have the awareness, right. that I have the skills. And I'm not saying, hey, I'm awesome. I'm literally just walking through the opportunities that we have. And with I know this is a hypothetical example, but then I can begin to work through the specific next steps and opportunity. So as you're listening to this, it's like, wow, I could probably just put Mike in charge of this and I wouldn't have anything to worry about.
0: And <laughs> live happily ever after. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah go, play, go play golf. I got this. <laughs>
0: I like the uh, connecting to impact, but now you've expanded my concept. I've always said, you know, what is the impact of your proposal? But it's not just that impact, Mike. It's the impact of the impact of the impact. Like, yeah, yeah. and really, uh, really, fall, create drawing that line, connecting those dots of immediate effects and then medium term, longer term. I really like that, I, and it shows vision, right?
1: It does, and I'll. In, a, in many situations, when we are looking to partner with somebody or promote somebody or, or choose to work with somebody, whatever it is, we need to trust them as a problem solver and as a communicator. Mm-hmm. Right. That is that is what we need. So right. as I'm going through the conversation, anything I can do to illustrate, not tell, illustrate right. my sharing. communication, problem solving, vision, now it's the puzzle is being built in front of me.
0: Right. So if somebody just, you know, is, you know, calls you up and says, you know, oh, my, I want to be more influential. What are you going to tell them?
1: Help people save face and be patient and let the situation come to you. Don't go chasing it down. All too often, if people feel like they're trying to be persuaded, the first thing they're going to do is become defensive. It's natural, right? <laughs> if, if you're telling me how great an opportunity is for me, there's a reasonable likelihood it's better for you. So,
0: <laughs> seeing <laughs> I've managed to
1: live yes. this long, I'm going to wait this out. Uh, yes,
0: like playing a little bit hard to get is uh, to a degree. To a degree, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's not that you want to <laughs> be invisible.
1: Yeah. I so,
0: wanna, okay. Yeah. No, no.
1: it's your show please I'm sorry it's your show Please, please go.
0: I, well I was just gonna segue to setting up any conversation for success we've, we've really talked around it and a lot of things involved in setting up the uh, conversation for success but in a nutshell you know to recap it for the audience any conversation because you're talking to the overthinkers of the world stop doing it um and I'm let, right at
1: home You're right.
0: How can, how can we, what is your approach to setting up any conversation for success?
1: Sure. I'll give two frameworks that really overlap for me. Mm -hmm. The first is I would literally sit down and ask myself these questions. What is my goal?
0: Okay. Start from purpose. I say that 5,000 times a day. All right, good. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Who do I have to achieve that goal with?
0: Oh, okay. What is my goal? Who
1: do I have to achieve that goal with? And what are the circumstances I have to achieve that goal with this person within
0: like budget or
1: it could be anything. So it it could be budget. It could be time. It could be personality. It could be stakeholder pressure. It could be self-image. It could be other available alternatives. It could be previous relationship history. It could be all of these things. Mm -hmm. What's the goal I need to achieve. Who's the person or people I need to achieve this with? And what are the circumstances that this goal has to be achieved within? Mm -hmm. Then I want to choose what I believe to be the best strategy within that. I don't want to take a cookie cutter approach. I don't always want to say, do this, do that, say this, say that. Mm -hmm. Those are really the the umbrella variables that I want to be considering. Mm -hmm. Once I believe I have that outlined and I'm going to start planning for a specific conversation. I'm going to have a conversation with you about you know a a potential large agreement, corporate agreement between businesses. For me, I don't want to ask myself, okay, why should Laura agree to this?
0: No, you're not.
1: No, no, I'm not. Because as much as I, (laughs) I do care. I do care. But as much as I feel like I am considering your perspective in that scenario, I'm not. I am transposing my perspective onto you. I'm making dangerous assumptions from a biased perspective. I already think I'm awesome. So (laughs) so why should you want to do business with me? Because I'm awesome. Because my company is awesome. My solutions are awesome. My price is awesome. Everything about me is awesome. So we all know
0: those people.
1: (laughs) So in order to avoid that, if I need to have a conversation with anybody, and the potential impact or value of that conversation, personal and business life is substantial enough. The first preparation question I ask myself is why shouldn't Laura agree to this?
0: Oh, okay. Like what are my objections with that? Get what you're getting at?
1: Literally, if I was Laura, mm-hmm. what are all the reasons I can think of that she would not want to do this? Okay. Because now I've got to be painfully honest with myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm considering your perspective at a much deeper level, which is going to give me a different level of understanding, a different level of empathy, and in just a moment, some real strategic advantages. And honestly, this comes from my former teammates and I, I serve almost exclusively as an executive resource now, but my previous life when I was in investigations nobody called us when they had evidence and they knew who did it. They would call (laughs) us when they had multiple suspects, no evidence, everybody had already denied wrongdoing once. And now we've got to come in and clean it up a couple of months later. So in that situation, there is no good reason for anyone to tell us the truth ever. They've almost got away with it. They have to keep their mouth shut for about 60 minutes in their home free.
0: Wow. That's so interesting. Tell us how, tell us about that.
1: So, so literally in the overwhelming majority of the time, they did open their mouths and they did tell us what happened. But the overwhelming majority of the time, it was because we didn't try to leverage our strengths, so to speak. We just embraced our weaknesses. As well, a general...
0: Give me an example. Give me an example. Of, I will just
1: one second. So as a general thought process, if we need to have a conversation with somebody, they have information that we need. Right. They're in control of this conversation, not us. I don't care what you title. Okay, because they're going to choose what information they're willing to share Uh, and what circumstances they're willing to share. So they're they're not
0: incentivized to collaborate.
1: No, no, people aren't. So to go back to your question, I promise I wasn't jumping past it. Um, For me, it became crystal clear at about thirty five thousand feet over maybe Indianapolis while I was flying (laughs) from Chicago to Cincinnati. Very long story short a ATF auditing team. This is how the story was related to me. I obviously wasn't there at the time. An ATF auditing team arrived at a location that sold firearms to audit their firearms and found that two firearms were missing. So the ATF auditors interview everybody. Nobody confesses. Local police comes in and interviews everybody. Nobody confesses. Eight weeks have since passed. I'm now on an airplane to interview five employees and hopefully get one of them to cough up where the guns are. Mm-hmm. So I'm scribbling on the back of one of those Coca-Cola napkins that we've all seen too many times. Yeah. And I'm literally at this point in my career, I'm literally thinking, well, why should whoever did it? Why should they tell me the truth? And I literally just coming back to uh, they shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's just be honest. They shouldn't. Yeah. They shouldn't tell me the right. truth. They're going to jail. They've already successfully lied to two other people. The guns are probably long gone at this point. They right. shouldn't tell me the truth. And all of a sudden it hit me like a brick. I can use that. I can definitely use that. So in, on that Coca-Cola napkin, instead of writing, why should they do it? I literally started writing down all the reasons I could think of why these people shouldn't confess. Mm-hmm. And I used that to build my strategy. And I am grateful to have had wonderful mentors and exposed to tremendous techniques The person who stole the guns turned out to be a two-time convicted felon. And he not only confessed to stealing both guns, but he drew me a map to where one was hidden in his basement and gave me the name, telephone number, and turn-by-turn directions to the guy he gave the other gun to. And so after that, I literally was like, okay, from now on, Mm
0: -hmm. this
1: is how I am preparing for all of my high value conversations, Mm -hmm. personal life with relationships, personal life as a consumer and anything business, sales, negotiation, coaching, interviewing, doesn't matter, all of it. Now, the the process has evolved for me since then. Mm -hmm. So I start by asking, why shouldn't they agree to what I want them or do what I want them Mm -hmm. to do? And I write it down. And if it doesn't hurt a little bit, you're not doing it right. Once I do that, then I ask myself the sister question, which is why haven't they already agreed to it Committed to it. Oh, that is so good.
0: Yes. Because a lot of times when they bring in experts like us, they already tried and it didn't work. (laughs)
1: Exactly. And the answer to that question typically falls in one of two categories. Why Mm -hmm. haven't they already done it? Either because A, they didn't know it was an option. Let's be fair. Maybe you can't solve problems you don't know you have, or B, they don't see the value.
0: Yes. Yes, they don't see the value. So
1: now I've got to address that value disconnect. So now I'm literally writing down all the reasons why I think they don't see the value.
0: Mm-hmm. Then, because
1: I'm old school and I literally do use a pen and paper all the time still, I just <laughs> look for my pen. I don't have one in front of me. And now I, I can't feel like talk to something you a pen in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> Something's missing. Um, but literally, on a piece of paper, I will have written down everything I can think of to answer those two questions. The next question I do not ask myself is I do not ask myself, okay, what do I need to say? Or what do I need to do? Because that is focused on me. Mm -hmm. And whatever outcome I want to achieve is going to be based around my counterpart, not me. So now what I do is I look at my answers to those first two questions and I ask myself, what does Laura need to experience before she chooses to tell me, agree to, do, change, whatever? So at the end of this, the question I'm asking myself isn't what do I need to say? It's Mm -hmm. what do you need to experience? And
0: Isn't that gonna be trust?
1: It is, but now it's, it's not just, okay, she needs to experience trust. It's how do we get there? So some of it could literally be logistical. When does the conversation need to happen? Where does it have to happen? How many conversations need to happen? Who needs to be involved? How much time should be between conversations? What information does she need to be presented with? What order does that need to be presented in? What questions does she need to ask? How do I set it up? So it's obvious that she should be asking those questions. What should I say? What order should I say it in? What face-saving mechanism should I use? When should I use them? So yes, you do need to experience trust and you do need to experience rapport and you do need to feel like you're lining this up with your self-image. Those are the things I know I need to do. But what's the experience that I need to create to get you to feel those things?
0: Yeah, but and how can you create that experience? Give, tell me an example.
1: Uh, that's so working with a team, mm-hmm. they it's a large construction company. I was working with their leadership team, and we had the opportunity to work with a specific group that was having productivity issues. Okay. Uh, productivity issues, including not showing up and calling out and bad workmanship and all these other things. Mm -hmm. So during the training program, one of the things, it literally got to the point because they kept complaining about, well, I can't get them to do what I need them to do. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, fine, cool. Top of your paper, write down, what do I need my team to do? And I let them write it down. And then because I can be a bit sarcastic, Mm
0: -hmm. I said, all
1: right, now cross it out. and they groaned and several of them swore at me and they crossed it out and underneath that I said right what do you need them to feel
0: ooh what do they need to feel cuz it's emotional
1: yes what you what you want somebody somebody to, what people do is driven by what they feel so stop yeah. trying to get people to do something and start trying to get people to feel something mm-hmm. so as an example we went out and one of the first things we did was essentially, because everybody worked in a small group. Nobody's working onesies, right? There's at least two or three or four people working together at different pockets of this project. Yeah, so what we start doing is we at the beginning of every night, we start walking around and it's, hey guys, how you doing? How's your day? Did you sleep okay? How's your family? Everything all right? So now we're having those personal conversations Mm -hmm. with them. And then we literally tap one guy on the shoulder and say, yo, you're responsible for these guys tonight. Anything happens, let us know anything we need to do. Let us know. We know you're out here taking care of each other every night. Tonight, I need you to report back to us and take care of these guys. And so now we're literally creating almost like a family unit experience within these small groups where over a period of time, they realize who cares if you don't like the company? Who cares if you don't like me? Who cares if you don't like the customer? I don't care about any of those things. If you are going to show up to work every day, it's going to be because you care about the person who you not being here affects the most, which right. is the guy standing next to you right now. Right. So, just by doing those things, we created the feelings of a family environment, mm-hmm. which had everybody back at work.
0: I love that. And also, it reinforces like a family value and of- culture. Yeah. I don't know if you talked about the culture, but sure. <laughs> I love that example. That is yeah. very cool. Well, this is an extremely interesting conversation. We are getting to the end of our time. Um, is there anything that I have not asked you that you think would value our audience of super duper high performer, brainiac nerds, and but stylish ones, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, do we have another four hours? Because I'm sure no. we can...
0: yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I know, I know, <laughs> I
1: joke, I
0: joke. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah. No, off the top of our head, lead to your expertise, don't lead with
0: it. Okay, that you have to explain. Lead to your expertise, not with
1: it. Oftentimes, the people that we find, and this might seem like a bit of a paradox, the people that we find have the most difficult time truly listening, engaging, and influencing others are the smartest and the most successful people. Mm -hmm. because listening equals learning, and we've got to be open to learning when we listen. And unfortunately, when people see us as the expert or when we have the job title of director, VP, CMO, CEO, whatever it might be, people are less motivated to give us information because there's consequences potentially associated with giving us information. So the more intelligent, the more educated, the more successful somebody is, the harder it is for them to listen to begin with. And the greater somebody's title is, the harder it is for other people to be honest with them. so now you look at your audience and say, well, we're in the crosshairs there. Yes. So in those conversations, we want to lead to our expertise, not with it. Meaning we don't want to just jump right to the end of the movie. Time is the enemy of empathy. We don't want to, if it takes us five minutes to get through a conversation, let's not try to end it in 30 seconds. Let's make the most of that five minutes that we have together. So that way we're not just trying to cut to the chase or change somebody's mind with the greatness of our presence. And I say that sarcastically,
0: Yeah, I know. Um,
1: But we're trying to give them the opportunity to teach us something that maybe we didn't consider, see fully, or understand. And then whether they did or didn't, use the perspective that they've now shared with us in order to educate them in a way where they feel like they participated in this conversation and now they're receptive to receiving your expertise as opposed to walking in the door and getting hit in the face.
0: Yes, that's, that's very good. That's certainly some advice that I need to take sometimes dealing with um, senior executives who are supposed to improve their communication, but (laughs) you, if you don't, if, if the expert doesn't handle it well, it doesn't, it's not pretty. It doesn't it doesn't work? Well, before I let you go, and I, I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions just to get to know uh, Michael the person, and then you sure. can tell people how they can get a hold of you and find and the title of your book again. So, where did you go on your last vacation?
1: I don't know that I've had a pure vacation in a long time. Typically, I book family vacations around wherever I may be working. Mm-hmm. So the last day, va- well, I went to see family up in New Hampshire most recently. And then I may have been really close to you, Greenville, South Carolina. Oh,
0: I'm in Charleston, Greenville. Okay, is- a couple hours away. Yeah, a few hours away. Okay, I'll tell you, what's your favorite dessert?
1: Chocolate cake. Okay,
0: what's your favorite store?
1: Favorite store?
0: I say that because our options are uh, diminishing and I want to, you know, just call out stores that are not, that don't begin with the letter A, uh, (laughs) if somebody still has a favorite.
1: Yeah, um, you'd have to ask my wife. She does the majority of the shopping. I'm a bit of a stereotypical guy in that way, um, but I will say, going back to my retail career, I quite enjoyed working at Bloomingdale's for your style. Oh
0: really? Oh my gosh! I work with people from Nordstrom. They're okay. Uh, favorite type of music. Rock and roll. Okay. Uh, movie genre. Ooh, I would say like a cross
1: between drama and action. Like I don't need an absurd amount of action that ruins the story. And Mm -hmm. I don't need so much drama that it's like winning some foreign prize for, you know, whatever. But, you know, I, I like my heart rate to change a little bit and have to kind of figure out what's going on, a little action mixed in. So somewhere in between.
0: Yeah, that, that sounds like a good kind of movie. How would you decide, describe your personal style? Does it have to be clothes, but your approach <laughs> to um,
1: Well, pragmatic.
0: Pragmatic. Is probably a good word to use. That's a good one. What were you afraid of as a child?
1: Oh, gosh. A lot, I'm sure. Um, now you're forcing me to remember being a kid. I think, like a lot of kids, I was afraid of not fitting in and being embarrassed and judged, and not being smart enough or good enough for a lot of those things. Of course, um, I'm still afraid of snakes.
0: Oh yeah, to me, so, only, only good snake is a dead snake. I was afraid of being kidnapped when I was little, <laughs> and we—it was not that we had that much money, but I somehow was sure I was going to be kidnapped. And do you, you last question? Yes. Do you, do you collect anything? Ooh, not in a
1: long time. Um, you know, as a kid, I collected baseball cards and stuff. And then as I traveled, I will collect mementos from different places that I've been. I have a small collection of challenge coins from different groups that I've worked with and things like that. Um, but I think at this point, I mostly collect pictures
0: of my son. I think that's, oh, that's about it. That's very cool. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. People want to know more of this inside track, this forensic track to really paying attention to different things, taking a different approach, a more audience centric approach, even more audience centric, really getting to why shouldn't they buy your thing or buy whether it's a proposal or a, or a product or a service or a contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do you want people to get in touch with you? And uh, I I mentioned the name of the book in the beginning. Feel free to tell people where they can get that as well.
1: I appreciate you asking. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So the business website where people can learn more about our training programs and advisory programs is Mm -hmm. inquasive.com, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E.com. My website is michaelreddington.com where people can access all of my media and work and, and so forth. The book is titled The Disciplined Listening Method. How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation. And that can be found on Amazon. It can be found on Barnes & Noble. And if somebody would like to look into it a little bit further, disciplinedlistening.com is the website where they can learn more about the book. I am not the world's best social media person, but if someone's looking for me on social media, LinkedIn would be the place to find me and I would be very happy to connect with anyone
0: awesome well i want to check out discipline listening i think that we didn't even talk about listening directly that we did talk about uh, paying attention thank you so much thank you everyone for listening this is i know that you've gotten so much value and taking notes hopefully you were not taking notes while you were driving (laughs) Uh, and then we will catch everyone on the next episode of the speak up with laura camacho podcast